Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 Democratic primary. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Just a quick programming note before we get started with the news this week. I wanted to let you all know that as of this week, the Primarily 2020 podcast also has a YouTube channel. That's right, a YouTube channel. I have um, converted my most recent podcast into um, a video file, um, which can be viewed from wherever you access YouTube. If that is your preference and your preferred channel, then by all means, um, please do subscribe. Um, I will be keeping that experiment up for a few weeks. Uh, If the audience turns out to be um, sizable on YouTube. And if people um, enjoy the channel in that format, then I will happily carry on. Um, Otherwise, I need to make a decision whether or not I'm going to invest in it. So if you appreciate having a YouTube channel, and if it's a good channel for you, please do let me know. I really value the feedback. I will certainly invest in it if enough viewers and listeners tell me that that's what they want. All right. Now the news. This week on Primarily 2020, I want to dig in a little bit more to understanding the media and the media's role in uh, the presidential race. So I will be speaking to Amy Bree Becker, who's an associate professor in the Department of Communications at Loyola University in Maryland. Amy's work focuses on public opinion and political entertainment. She's done work looking at public reactions to um, Donald Trump and boycotting of Trump's businesses in the 2016 race, um, and also some interesting work on Trump's Um, reactions to Saturday Night Live and popular culture. Um, So she'll be joining me in just a few minutes to talk through um, the the role of the media and the media landscape in 2020. But first, uh, a quick news update for you. Again, as usual, there's quite a lot going on in the news this week. Um, A few primary specific um, and polling and uh, campaign related Uh, news updates this week. And then I want to talk a little bit about the big political news this week, which has been the ongoing um, uh, racist attacks uh, by Donald Trump against four non-white female representatives. Um, But first, news broke this week that Bernie Sanders workers um, have are now claiming that they are not being paid at the $15 per hour equivalent minimum wage rate that Bernie is calling for. You may remember that Sanders, one of his signature policies is raising the national minimum wage to $15 per hour. Um, To his enormous credit, he, um, and very unusually in a presidential campaign, He has supported and encouraged the unionization of his campaign workers. So they are represented by a union. That union now says that um, given the very long hours that his campaign staff work, which is typical for a campaign, um, 60 hour a week and more, um, that if you balance that out at an hourly rate, the annual salaries that they are being cha- that they are being paid do not work out at a $15 per hour minimum wage. Um, so this news is just breaking. We have yet to see how Sanders is going to respond to this. Um, to me, I think this is a really interesting and potentially challenging, but also potentially clarifying moment for Sanders. Um, the $15 
$15 minimum wage is, is a signature policy of his that has been adopted by the whole of most of the Democratic coalition. Um, so what he needs to do now is, um, is demonstrate how that policy would live in practice. There has been a lot of criticism from the business community, as you would expect. They don't want to raise wages. So um, of course, they're going to criticize the policy. Um, but some of the arguments that they made, that they make against the policy are similar to the types of arguments um, that Sanders will now have to confront as a manager of his staff. Um, for example, how do you account for the fact that campaign workers typically do work very, very long hours? Is Sanders going to um, suggest to them that they should work a standard 40-hour week? Um, is he going to offer them overtime pay for time in excess of that? Um, there are a lot of ways that he potentially could handle this. Um, I think it's a delicate one for him, though, because it's a really important part of his political brand, that he's supportive of workers. Um, and also because Elizabeth Warren has been gaining on Sanders quite a bit in the polls, in especially among high-information voters who are looking closely at the detail of policy. Um, so it's important that Sanders um, demonstrate at this tricky moment for his campaign that he has thought through the details of this policy and that he can showcase what an employer should be doing um, in a um, future America where uh, the $15 minimum wage had been implemented. So um, I'm going to be watching that really carefully because I think I would love to see Sanders, Sanders really step up to the plate on this and expand his thinking about how a $15 minimum wage should work. Um, I personally am strongly in support of the idea of raising worker wages, but I have been doubtful about whether a national minimum wage at that rate makes sense, considering the vast disparity in the cost of living across the country. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued by it. I definitely think um, I like seeing the movement behind it and the worker support. I still think there's a lot of aspects to it that haven't been explored, i.e. $15 an hour is not that much money in places like New York, even much of New York State. Um, it is a very comfortable salary in rural parts of the country. Um, and so this feels like it's penalizing urban workers over rural workers to some degree. So should the minimum wage not be more weighted to a basket of consumer goods or to the cost of housing or to the overall cost of living in these places? Um, does $15, have we, are we just tying ourselves um, to a new kind of low bar as um, wages go up? Um, so I think we just need to think all that through. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, the new debate line lineups have been announced for the next Democratic debates, which will be happening the end of this month. Um, as per the previous debate, I will be um, joined by a panel of people to comment upon that. Um, but we now know who's going to be in which set of debates. As, as per the previous round, 10 candidates will be in each of two nights. So the debates will run as follows. On the 30th of July, um, in order of polling average, the candidates will be Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Marianne Williamson, John Delaney, John Hickenlooper, Tim Ryan, and Steve Bullock. On the July 31st debate, the candidates will be, again, in order of polling, uh, polling support on average, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Andrew Yang, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, Mike Bennett, Jay Inslee, Kirsten Gillibrand, 
and Bill de Blasio. Obviously, the headline takeaway for this is that, again, Elizabeth Warren will not be on the same stage as Joe Biden, as as happened in the last debate. So she has not yet had an opportunity and will not have an opportunity yet to directly confront the front runner. She was the highest polling candidate uh, not to be on the second debate stage in the previous round. However, that first debate now will include a face-off between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So it will be interesting to see what the dynamic is between the two of them since um, they are perceived to be kind of in similar ideological wheelhouses, but with very different personal styles. Um, so that will be a really interesting debate to watch. And then obviously the second debate will be Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, again, at the top of the ticket, so to speak. They were the headline of the previous debate. Um, the confrontation between Kamala and Joe Biden um, looks like it's a, a, it's it's could happen again in a similar way. But this time there will also be Cory Booker on the stage. Last time Kamala stepped forward and said, as the only black person on this stage, I would like to say a word about race. Um, that obviously won't be the case now since there is a array of minority candidates, including Cory Booker on the stage with her in the second round. So it will be interesting to see if that changes the dynamic at all. Okay, other news this week. Um, there is new polling that has just come out from Morning Consult, which shows that Maine Senator Susan Collins has suffered an enormous loss of support. Um, just a few years ago, she was among the most popular senators um, in the Senate. She's now the second least popular senator um, after only Senate uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell. Collins is up for re-election in 2020, and her seat is a top pickup opportunity for Democrats. She's already attracted several top-tier Democratic um, opponents, uh, including uh, the woman who is currently the Speaker of the um, of the Maine State House uh, Senate. So it will be interesting to see um, how she runs that race, but I think she's, she's in a vulnerable position more so than she has been before, um, considering that she is now the only remaining Republican representing the Northeast and New England states in the Senate. Um, she is, could be perceived as something of an outlier in that body, which has mostly aligned along partisan political grounds. Um, so this could be, you know, a corrective for that, but equally she's been very resilient in the past. So let's see what happens. Um, but I think a lot of her problems, um, that she's suffering in terms of popularity derive from her, um, her vote in favor of just, of Chief of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, um, even after serious allegations of um, sexual assault were made against him, um, and even though um, many people believe that he was handpicked for the purpose of overturning Roe versus Wade, which now looks threatened, just Collins has always put herself out as a pro-choice as a pro-choice candidate and a pro-choice senator, um, but she has repeatedly voted for anti-choice Supreme Court justices, including in this instance. Um, that is something that people will be watching very closely. And finally, most of the political news this week has been dominated by Donald Trump's attacks on four non-white female representatives. Um, he has been tweeting that these women, all of whom are US citizens, and three of whom were born and raised in this country. Um, he says of them, quote, so interesting to see, quote, progressive Democratic Congresswomen who originally came from the countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, comma, the greatest and most powerful nation 
situation on Earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how it is done? The president wrote, these places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. Um, So obviously there's a lot in there that's just wildly offensive and factually wrong. Um, First of all, all of these women are U.S. citizens. Um, Three of them were not only born in this country, but Ayanna Presley, for example, and Elizabeth Ocasio-Cortez. Um, Ayanna Presley is an African-American woman whose family has been in this country for centuries, longer than Donald Trump's family, by some long degree. And Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is ancestrally Puerto Rican. Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. It is part of America. There is nowhere for these people to go back to, even if that were in any way a sensible thing to demand, which it obviously is not. In fact, um, employee employment non-discrimination law spec- stipulates that calls for people to, quote, go back to the countries from which they come um, is an actionable um actionable attack um, against uh, against non-Americans or, or uh, naturalized American citizens. It's not lawful for you to use that kind of language in the workplace. Um, but nevertheless, the, 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 the president is. Um, I also want to note, he talks about um, criticizing these women for um, telling the people of the United States how the government is to be run. They're not doing that. They're running the government. They are the government. They, they they have every right. In fact, it is literally their job to tell the government how it is to be run because that is what they were elected for. Um, but there is no point really arguing with this on semantics or arguing the details of, of the many different ways in which the president's language is offensive. It is intended to be offensive. He is trying to make people angry. Um, and it is working to the extent that it is making people angry. Trump's attacks culminated in him um, going on to spread slanderous rumors, which I will not repeat on this podcast, about Representative Ilhan Omar, um, the Palestinian-American representative from Minnesota, and eventually in him attacking her at a rally in North Carolina, um, where he prompted the crowd into shouting, chanting, send her back. This is fascism. That That is what fascism looks like. Um, we have seen this before. It is not novel. It is not interesting. Um, It is not original. It's not economic anxiety. It is fascism. It is race-based exclusionary tactics. It is the denial of the humanity of people who are not just citizens, but leaders of this country. And um, none of us should stand for it. So this week, for our conversation on the media and politics, um, I am very happy to welcome Amy Bree Becker. Um, Amy is an associate professor in the Department of Communications at Loyola University in Maryland. Um, Her research is focused on public opinion, political entertainment, and comedy, um, and she teaches courses on communications theory and political communication, so she seems like just a great person for us to be having this conversation with. So thank you for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me. 
Great to have you on the podcast. Um, I'm really keen to have this conversation about the media because um, it feels like, I mean, I work in, you know, generally as a communications um, strategist and specialist, but even in my kind of close experience of watching it, it feels like the media landscape has has evolved really quickly, both from kind of a social media point of view, which I know more about, but also from the um, TV and mainstream media point of view. Can you give us a sense of kind of what you think is happening in the U.S. media landscape right now in terms of politics and especially how you think things have been changing over the past few years during the Trump administration? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I think it's important to point out, first off, that the media environment here is exhausting. Um, It sure is. (laughs) Yeah, it's ongoing. It's continuous. There's not a break, right? The traditional Friday afternoon news dump still sometimes happens, but it seems like Everything is moving even faster than it was before. Um, and I think we we see a real um, sectioning off of people into their kind of media silos based on, um, you know, their political preferences. But I also think their preferred balance for fact versus opinion. And so it's not just, um, you know, is this source more liberal or more conservative, but how much do I want to be entertained? Um, how much do I want straightforward news? And so much of what we're seeing is filtered through our social networks, right? And through people kind of curating for us first the things that we should be looking at. And social media famously was obviously a big driver of um, Trump's election in 2016, um, but kind of in slightly different ways than how it was necessarily reported because there was a lot of kind of, yes, Russian bots and so forth, but also just a lot of kind of organic misinformation that was being spread and false information, which wasn't very well identified at the time. And you saw lots of media outlets popping up that were kind of pseudo, pseudo authentic looking quasi news things that were actually just um, content farms. Sure. And you see plenty of people getting fooled by them. Um, I do think there's still though, at least among, I, I think while there is this problem of fake news and questioning the source, there are still discerning media consumers out there mm-hmm. who have their preferred outlets. Um, and I, but I also think that the pace at which things spread and are shared is is faster, and the reactions are faster. So, um, and, and it's still even more so a soundbite culture where a little piece of a speech gets shared, and that's what gets responded to over and over again. Um, there is much more of a kind of a response. Um, and, but I also see that media coverage is um, almost a reporting now from traditional media sources of what's being said on social media. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all the president's tweets that get embedded into an online news story right, or that even get shown on the screen on television. Um, I think that we're seeing traditional media sources rely more on social media for content. And that means they're consuming content out of context, effectively. Right. And I think that um, there's some real ethical implications for a lot of the reporting that's been going on lately. And um, when do we need to break that wall of objectivity and really call out what's being said for what it is? And what is it? What do Um, we need to call out? Well, you know, lately, at least the, the whole story in the U.S., and I know it's got global implications, is you know, Donald Trump's rally in North Carolina and and his decision to tell four freshman congresswomen, all women of color, that, you know, to go back where they're from, even though they're American citizens. 
Um, and we've seen a lot of reporting on that and some journalists calling it for what it is, which is racist language, and some just reporting on the tweets and the reaction and the backlash without commentary. And I think there's maybe a, a time now where objectivity needs to be kind of dropped for um, for honest reporting. I think it's really challenging, isn't it? Because Trump Trump is designed to break the systems, it feels like. Because not only is he so comfortable breaking barriers and sort of breaking norms and being openly racist and inflammatory, and, and I mean, his he got his origins in politics by spreading conspiracy theories. So, right. you know, the, the birther conspiracy theory, he's done it more recently to um, Congresswoman Omar. Um, he, he's happy to spread unsourced, un, you know, unvalidated kind of or, or even easily disprovable information. And he's lied more than any president in our history. But that doesn't seem to be having any impact on the truth or falsehood of what he's saying doesn't seem to have any impact on his ability to get that information out there. Right. How I should Democrats a, deal with that? Well, I think there's a need now to really think very carefully as we get closer to the election about, um, you know, we're just amplifying and magnifying what he's saying. Right. And not addressing it critically. And what are we not talking about since we've been talking about his Twitter activity for the past four days? Right. Um, and so how does that shift the media narrative um, and how does that drum up kind of, um, you know, support for him or for Congresswoman kind of at the, the polar extremes? Um, and I just think we spend and, and it's a hard question because. He is the president, and when a president communicates, that is usually news, right? Um, and and we have whole beats devoted to covering the White House and to covering politics. Um, but it does seem like we focus so much more on this personal, combative um, narrative, and we're not talking about the issues. We're certainly not talking about um, what's happening at the border because we're busy talking about yeah. this Twitter activity. So is it, I'm just trying to turn this into a prescription, because on the one hand, we can give advice to the media. And then on the other hand, I'm trying to think if I were a Democratic candidate, what would I be doing differently to try and um, to try and break into this ether? Because Trump dominates media coverage effortlessly. Um, and so what what would you suggest? Like, let's take it from the media point of view right now. If you were given the editorship of the New York Times or of CNN, um, what would you be doing differently right now? Would you be switching away from the president's words to the president's actions? How would you change the coverage? I think I would like to see greater diversity of voices. So when you, for example, when you put a, a tweet on screen, and I'm not saying that, you know, those necessarily shouldn't be there, but they can certainly be fact-checked more than they're being fact-checked. Um, they can, we can certainly see a dialogue of opposing points of view and responses. Um, I do think that there's a responsibility of the press to um, elevate the debate. Um, and I guess I, you know, equal time. Why? I, I know that he's the president and we spend so much time focusing on him, but even in the Democratic race, um, we see, and, and Granted, candidates who are doing better in the polls, who have raised my money, should get more coverage than people who are polling at zero to one percent. But um, can we be a little bit more equitable in the way that we um, cover those elections? I mean, that second point is a really interesting from for me because 
my perception, which I'm curious to know if you if you validate that perception, is that it's much harder, particularly for female candidates, to get the same amount of media attention, whether it's positive or negative, um, as as some of the male candidates seem to seem to accrue. But I don't know if that's just my own biased perception. But it feels to me like Kamala Harris, for example, has had to work really, really hard to break through, even though every time she does break through, she performs very well. Do you, do, does that fe- seem right to you or am I misapplying that uh, that judgment? I think to some extent, I think she's gotten more coverage after the debate, but it takes something like a debate over school busing and, you know, an argument with Joe Biden to get her more press attention. Um, and I, I do definitely think, though, that we're already seeing kind of narrowing of coverage and focus on a handful of candidates. Um, and I... I get that there's obviously too many people to talk about, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that it would be nice to see a little bit more coverage of some of the women running in the race and some of the younger candidates, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I guess I guess my wish list would be I would love to see better policy coverage. I know people always say that, but um, the coverage of the poli- of the race, both in the primary and in the general, but let's stick with the primary for a moment. The, the candidates talk about issues, but it doesn't feel like the media then does the job of picking up that issue and saying, okay, let's look at a compare and contrast of, for example, Julian Castro's immigration policy it would be great to see, you know, some conversation about, you know, what other candidates are proposing, how that fits in. Immigration is a big issue, really dig into it, but it sort of seems to stay at the level of who's attacking who rather than what are the alternative proposals. Right. Unless you're looking at uh, an in-depth piece, like I know the New York Times magazine a few weeks ago looked at Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. right? And but it seems like the story is Elizabeth Warren has proposals, has plans, yeah. right? That's the story, not <laughs> this is her plan for right. education. It's like she's decided to have this clever political strategy of making plans. What do people think of that as opposed to this and is it, the plan? Right. And I think that, um, you know, certain issues, I think, Americans want to know the plans. They want to know the plans for the economy. They want to know what's going to happen with student loans. They want to know what's going to happen with immigration because it directly affects their lives. And we've become so much, I mean, you know, we've talked about horse race journalism for, for decades probably now, right? But it's become so much more about the race and the, the attacks and the debate and the personal politics. And, you know, there are ways to easily break down and compare and contrast graphically you know, these plans, these different candidates are promoting. And especially when you have such a, a crowded field, really understanding the finite differences, you know, between these candidates is important. Granted, you know, not everyone pays attention to that, right? And we make our, our choices based on heuristic cues. So we make our choices based on who's holding up their hand at the debate, right? Or, you know, what someone tells us about a particular candidate. But there is space to take a closer look at these policy proposals and compare and contrast. Yeah. And and also it feels like the media has, I don't know if this is something they do on purpose or if it's just a bad habit they've got into, but there's this tendency to want to apply balance in ways that actually are unbalanced and unfactual. Um, so I think, you know, for example, in 2016, there was more negative coverage given to Hillary Clinton's emails than to all of the Trump-related scandals and issues combined. Mm-hmm. And it felt like, to me, it felt like the media was trying very hard to talk more about Hillary's scandals because there were so, Hillary's email issue, because there were so many scandals they'd already covered for Trump. So it was kind of like, okay, let's talk about this now. Um, whereas genuine balance would actually be much more 
neutrally reporting what the you know what the relative relevant information is about the candidates and about their plans and policies right but we also have to remember i mean that's not entertaining right no. so understanding elizabeth lauren's policy on you know student loan reform really not very entertaining but showing and reporting back and forth the exchange between kamala harris and, and joe biden in the debate that's, that's good tv right you know it makes for great television okay so then let's go to the other side of the aisle. So we're no longer advising the media on how to do better. Now we're advising the candidates how to operate within that environment. Sure. So we need to be better at having entertaining TV moments if we want to get the kind of campaign coverage that is going to help us break through. And I, when I say we, I mean all the Democratic candidates, but you know, any individual one has to take that policy. So what can candidates do in an environment where Trump so effortlessly dominates conversation by being inflammatory and unfactual and where we can spend the next week debating a racist tweet or a conspiracy theory and we want to be factual and we want to be um, fair and we want to be kind? How can we break through within those constraints? Um, so I think that there's some candidates who've been doing a pretty good job um, um, in their interview conversations with late night comedy hosts, um, with appearances on soft news programs like The View. So I think some of these more you know non-news programs that do talk about politics and do address um, you know news issues, I think are important. And um, that's why these appearances on The View and interviews with Stephen Colbert and um, Trevor Noah are really important. Um, and I think some candidates have done a better job than others of taking advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. Well, I mean, Obama famously was was very good at late night cable hosts, at late night, late night TV talk show hosts. And he did, you know, things like online um, uh, viral videos with Between Two Ferns. And he was really media literate in that way, which I think was really interesting. Trump is very pop culture engaged, but more, he's more engaged as a critic almost, isn't he? He doesn't go on talk show hosts, talk shows particularly in this no, day and age. And when he does, um, you know, uh, he's a lot of, you know, I mean, Jimmy found the, the great example that, you know, he's dangerous to have on your show if you're not tough enough on him. Yeah. Um, and I think that he, you know, in my research, he's the first person to fire back at Saturday Night Live. Right. It actually works to his advantage, but every other president, presidential candidate, major U.S. politician has always embraced being made fun of because it's a sign that you've made it, that you've yeah. transitioned out of politics into popular culture. Um, and he's the only one who fights back. Um, and it and it's worked to help people believe that, gee, maybe Saturday Night Live is a little biased, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not just about the humor here. So it's worked to his advantage, um, but it, it's uncommon. Um, I think that um, some of these candidates have done a better job than others in telling their story. Um, so what's a, what's, a, what's a good job? What should we be looking for? Um, what are the I attributes? Think, um, Pete Buttigieg does a great job in interviews. He's got a really compelling story and he tells it very calmly, um, very carefully, um, and is really just a pleasure for people to sit and listen to, even if, you know, they might not um, be kind of on board with his candidacy. He he tells a very compelling, calm story. I think he's rising above some of the the negativity. Um, I think that um, some of the other candidates. Um, I I think I saw. Um, so Trevor Noah has this series. It's only online. Um, 
he's been having conversations with the Democratic candidates that, you know, off air kind of in between with the studio mm-hmm. audience. Oh, yeah, and I've seen those. Those are great. They're phenomenal. And they're unique because you almost feel like he's having a conversation with just a, a regular person. Right. And there's one, um, Kamala Harris did one, and they're talking about music. Um, and so I think the more that these, can- it's a, a shame that these are only online in a sense, because the more that these candidates can seem like people, um, you know, that you would want to have a conversation with, that you would want to hear their story. Um, those are the candidates that are going to do quite well. Yeah. So you're saying have some fun out there. Yeah. I mean, and I know that, you know, there's other people on the other side that would say, you know, we don't, we want a leader. We shouldn't care about having a conversation, but we're attracted to human beings. And this is the way our media culture has become, right? We've come a long way from Bill Clinton playing the saxophone on Arsenio Hall. And, you know, they asked him on MTV whether he wore boxers and briefs. Like those are trivial things, but we want to vote for someone, especially in this time of, you know, questionable character coming out of the White House. We want to vote for someone who, who makes us feel okay. Yeah, I, I buy that. I think that's right. And and Trump does not make us feel okay. He's making us feel bad. So I wonder if there's a there's a hunger out there for, for doing the opposite, basically, you know, getting a bit of a feel-good factor in and, and making people feel happy again instead of angry and fearful all the time. Right. But then, you know, there and then there is a, a group of the population that really likes his rhetoric and, you know, answers back in the call and response at his rallies. So it's not all oh, we want something more mellow, more peaceful, more happy. Um, but maybe there's some way to restore some dignity and respect um, and civility to our politics. I mean, but do you think that Trump basically has, because he's the one thing I've always said, Donald Trump is only good at one thing and it's not business. He's only good at television. And that's, you know, that that was the best thing he ever did was the way he ran The Apprentice, basically. Um, and it feels to me like he has this natural media savvy, this kind of fluency with the medium. Um, and I'm just wondering if you think he's, he does he have a smart media strategy? Is that inflammatory rhetoric paying off for him or will it pay off for him in 2020 i think it it's a useful strategy and it distracts us from talking about other things right and it distracts us from looking at policy and there have been some um you know changes that can kind of fly under the radar mm-hmm. right because that's what we're talking all we're talking about is what's happening on twitter and in the rallies um so i think it is masterful in that it changes the narrative and the focus um and so this is all we talk about where all these other things can kind of go unnoticed. Um, but he's not the first president to do television well. Yeah. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan did television well, Barack Obama, even John F. Kennedy in their earlier days of television. Um, so he's not the first person to understand and embrace the medium. But he does it really differently. Yes. Really differently. <laughs> And um, and and one of the ways in which he does it differently is um, his relationship with Fox News, which is, it seems to me, very unusual in that basically there's a real dialogue going on between the president and that particular network. Um, there is a debate in the Democratic primary between some candidates who have, like Pete Buttigieg, who we alluded to earlier, Bernie Sanders, who have been doing Fox News town halls under under the understandable philosophy that you need to reach out to Trump voters. This this is where they are. In some cases, Fox is the only news channel that they consume. Um, And so they've been doing some pretty successful, I would say, actually, town halls 
On the other hand, you've had Elizabeth Warren and I think Kamala Harris as well, a couple of other candidates who have also understandably, in my view, been um, said that they won't go on Fox News um, because they don't want to basically they don't want Fox News making money off of them and the Democratic primary, considering that they haven't behaved journalistically. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that and, and which which side do you think has the better point? Um, you know, I think you could go either way, depending on your beliefs. I think that um, I, I still think it's important um, as a society to try and reach everybody. Even the, you know, sure there are some Fox News who might be swayed, right? Particularly suburban white women. Um, I think though that um, it, it's a dangerous precedent when you start automatically counting a section of the electorate out because of their media choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would err on, on the side of um, greater inclusivity as a media strategy. Um, but I also see, you know, that, I mean, it, it's really hard to sit there and swallow that, you know, people are tuning in to see if there can be an attack on that candidate, right? And, you know, looking for kind of some vitriol rather than just having an opportunity to hear the candidate tell their story. Yeah. And I mean, there are things that happen on the Fox network, like Tucker Carlson, which has kind of become the white supremacy hour, which has been quite inflammatory. And I think there's a lot of desire from the Democratic base to not reward that kind of behavior. But equally, we're only punishing ourselves if we if we shut off certain voters that we otherwise might might be able to reach. So, yeah, it's not it's not easy. And and probably the most courageous thing is to go on those programs and call them out for what they are. But that's also you know hard to do in the moment. Yeah. Tricky, tricky, tricky. Um, so I think final thought then on that. So if I were to catapult you into the role of media advisor to any candidate, so not any particular candidate, think of think of the one you like the best. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you tell them to do differently um, in terms of how they can how they can get ahead of the media the media narrative? I think it's to focus even more on those non-traditional entertaining venues. I think it's to focus on, you know, having image-worthy material that can be shared on Instagram, right? I think it's in elevating the discussion, making sure that, you know, what you were tweeting is above, you know, the fray, right? I think so part of it is acting, you know, with good behavior and and sort of serving as a model, um, particularly for young citizens who are new to the political process. Um, but I think it is unfortunately all about having those shareable soundbite images, those moments, right? Those breakout moments. Um, and that the, the more of those moments you have, hopefully the more space you're able to capture in the media cycle. Great. Great. Well, listen, Amy, um, if you've got a few more minutes, um, I would love it if you could stick around and play the gut check game with me. Is that all right? Great. So for new podcast listeners, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap into which I have placed the names of um, all of the 2020 Democratic candidates. Um, I'm going to pull a name out of our out of a hat and then Amy and I are going to figure out which media um and media outlet or format um, would be the best fit for them. So if you want to say Donald Trump is the Twitter president, um, then the, then the question is what 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 kind of media is the best fit? Where would you send this person for their first media engagement? Um, and the first name that I'm pulling out of the hat is Amy Klobuchar. 
Mm. That's a tough one. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? She's so Midwestern, so like yeah. Northern. Um, you know, I think she would do great. Um, maybe on a more entertainment oriented late night show, like a Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel. Um, she needs to seem a little bit more down to earth, right? And a little bit more personable. And I think that those kinds of conversations can bring out some of those more personal details. She has some great stuff to say about, you know, her parents, um, and their, and her working class roots. And I think she needs to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Or maybe like the view, something like that. Yeah. You know, it's, I think, um, I'm not sure how well she does with a a crop of female panelists. I Mm -hmm. wonder, um, you know, would she be better in kind of a more one-on-one format? Right. More, more interview style. Yeah. But in a but in a more casual way, because right. she had I mean she has she can be really funny actually that's one thing so she might do well in late night because she has a really sharp wit like in mm-hmm. the debate she clapped back with a um, to I know somebody was saying uh, I think somebody was trying to claim that they've done more for abortion rights and she right. kind of shot right back with there's three women on this stage you've done a lot for choice and it was really sharp and uh, so yeah I think there's something something she could maybe do there. Yeah, I think that she that that forum might be a good one for her. Yeah. Okay, I've got um, oh Julian Castro, former former secretary Julian Castro. Um, you know, the last appearance that I saw him do was on the View right after the debate, um, and I think he did a good job um, fielding questions and sort of being able to answer um, multiple perspectives. Um, so I actually could see him more on a kind of panel based discussion type show. I buy that. Yeah. Something chatty. Um, you know, he could do, uh, yeah, he could do something relaxed. I mean, I've actually met Julian Castro and he's actually very charming. So I think the yeah. ladies would probably love him on the view. Yeah, I can I see that. Him and and it, he was, um, you know, on screen from Miami and I think sitting around the table with them would actually be a good opportunity for him. Yeah. Okay. The next thing I've just pulled out of my hat is, um, Oh, Andrew Yang. And I already know which media outlet I think he would do best in. <laughs> um, I would have to say maybe online. Yeah. Um, you know, I could see him doing like a Facebook chat, um, yep. you know, or spending some more time on Twitter. I mean, he's a tech guy. So I think that, you know, he's more comfortable with Silicon Valley. I did see him, I believe it was on The View, um, and it was not his best media no. performance. <laughs> he didn't have a good debate either in particular. No. So yeah, I, I, to- I totally agree. He's such a tech guy, but actually to me, he's like a Ted talk come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, not maybe because he's done a lot of work around universal basic income, but he had his, um, his previous kind of in- initiative, his social, social change initiative. So he's done a lot of kind of like making the pitch in a kind of 15, 20 minutes, um, Ted style speech. So I feel like that's his sweet spot really. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's an interesting choice. Um, I'm going to have to think about this one myself. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders. Mm. Tricky. Yeah. Um, I could see him being more of a podcast guy. You know, because he appears so angry sometimes. You know, when he's on video talking to folks that maybe he needs to have a conversation, a more detailed conversation, like with an Ezra Klein, you know. Um that maybe if he's talking a little bit more about policy, there's less emotion that comes through maybe for him. 
That is really interesting. It's making me realize, I love that answer because it's making me realize that I listen to so many political podcasts and he's probably one of the only candidates I haven't heard on a podcast yet. So I think you should do that. I think it would be great. I think a more conversation-based program than, you know, something that's a little bit more animated. Yeah, I agree. All right, Bernie, are you listening? Try that. Um, so that that's interesting. Uh, should we do one more? Sure. Okay, so pulling on my hat. So, oh, okay. Um, this one is kind of obvious, actually, because it's what he's kind of already done. But uh, let's say Beto O'Rourke. Um, he's had a hard time. I think <laughs> a lot. Um, you know, I also saw him on the View. I also did not think it was phenomenal for him. I think he's got to do more of his online town hall kind of Twitter stuff. And maybe yeah. break through a little bit more that way. Um, I also could see him doing, you know, a late night comedy show and, and you know, he was in a band. Um, I could there you see go. He could do like an, a Bill Clinton, Arsenio Hall, play yeah, Get Out and Play Sax. You know, he got much better press during his Senate race for being this loose, you know, guy. And I feel like he's appeared pretty stiff in the debates and in other formats. And I could actually, you know, Watch him go play some music on Stephen Colbert. I actually agree with that. I was thinking to myself that the thing he kind of got his name for was more viral videos, but yeah. some a lot of the viral videos, like Instagram Lives and whatever, were things like him in his car singing along to the music. And that's I've liked him the most doing that than in anything else he's ever done. So I say go back to your car singing. I enjoyed that. Yeah. I just do wonder if that's, you know... Is it serious enough for the yeah. president? Yeah. yeah. But he's like, good at it. Fun. Yes, he's definitely much better at that than a lot of these more formal media appearances. All right, but maybe he needs to push himself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Great. Amy, that was really interesting and really fun. Thank you. Um, I, I really enjoy that. I think we will uh, we will no doubt be talking more about the media as the race progresses. So um, I may be calling on you again for further comment. But thank you again. Sure, absolutely. And that's it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Karen Jr. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Um, I, if, I urge you, if you are an American citizen listening to the sound of my voice, please make sure that you have registered to vote and or requested your absentee ballot. You should do that in every election cycle. And this year is an election year in your state and local elections. Um, don't forget, we need to take back a lot of state houses if we want to um, restore political power to this democracy. So um, make sure you voted. Uh, make sure you register and request your ballot. You can do that at vote.org if you are an American back home. Or if you're an American overseas, the site to go to is votefromabroad.org. As always, you can leave me a voicemail. Just click the link in the um, description of the podcast to go through to the Anchor Voicemail app um, and leave me a message, um, which I may recruit, may use in a future episode if you would like me to do so. Um, and um, drop me a note on Twitter and let me know in either form what you think about um, our new YouTube channel and whether you value um, the, the, the podcast having a YouTube outlet. All right. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week. Thank you.